Hey, how's it going, y'all? Welcome to Found Flicks. On this inning explained, we're looking at men. Which, by the way, did you know that men suck? Yep, newsflash a-holes. In the latest from Alex Garland, a woman retreats to the countryside to be alone in the wake of a tragedy, but the vacation turns into a full-fledged nightmare when she encounters the town's eerily similar men and her arrival awakens something primal in the forest. So far, of the movies that Alex Garland has directed, they fit mostly into the science fiction genre, but with men, his latest, he dips his toe into a much more horror-centric tale. Now, it's not really a traditional horror movie, as his movies are also very arty and weird. And this might be his weirdest one yet. There's a consistent sense of unease that permeates the story, but of course nothing is more bizarre than her discovering that every man in town, and even a boy in a nightmare of the uncanny valley, all share the same face. It's just really weird. Yes, it's meant to represent in a way that all men are the same, but the story expands into something much more complex and all-encompassing, involving the cycle of nature as well as the evolution from the old ways into the more modern world. Then there's Harper's personal arc that is really at the heart of the film, and this helps to understand the meaning behind the abrupt conclusion. It's certainly a lot to dig into, but don't worry, that's why we're here today, to really get into the heart of things and explain every lingering question in the movie. So let's check out men breaking down the story, including what the strange face-sharing men are all about, as well as diving into Harper's journey and explaining the ending. An orange haze covers an apartment balcony, and Harper appears dazed momentarily, but quickly steps back. She swings the door closed, noticing that she has a bloody nose. Suddenly, a man plummets past the floor, right in front of her, and for a brief moment they lock eyes before he keeps falling. Elsewhere, a dandelion sheds its seeds into the air, passing by a dilapidated building. While we don't know the full context yet of the opening, it had a big impact on Harper, who is leaving the big city and heading out into the picturesque countryside. She makes her way to a quaint village and pulls off at a grand gated estate. She comes to a tree ripe with some fresh apples, and she plucks one, taking a nice crunchy bite, seeing she's being watched by someone inside. It's not a sinister as it might appear, as she meets Jeffrey, the home's owner of where she'll be staying. She beams that it's a beautiful house, and it has some serious history. Some parts are nearly 500 years old. He considers just how long that really is, perhaps even predating Shakespeare's time. This place has been around a long time. We then get our first little hint as to what things are going to be like as far as Harper interacting with men around here. Jeffrey offers to get her bags and refuses to let her help. He comes in later struggling with all of her luggage, and again refuses to let her lend a hand. He heaves his way in and complains that he's even broken a sweat. Poor dainty lady can't possibly carry her own stuff, and yet we also see that he struggles to do so, proving that basic old-fashioned depiction of masculinity. Get used to it! He notices the half-eaten apple and chides her for eating it, referring to it as forbidden fruit, giving us heavy Garden of Eden vibes. Yeah, he was just joking, and invites her on a tour of the estate. While Jeffrey does come across as generally good-natured, he makes comments that can't help but offend. He inquires where her hubby is, as she booked under Mrs. Marlowe. She corrects that she isn't married anymore, but she hasn't changed her name yet, leaving Jeffrey suitably embarrassed at the mistake. He hands her the large key to the house, but tells her she probably won't even need it. No one locks their doors around here. If she needs him, he informs her that he's just down the lane. She calls her friend Riley to gush about her dream country house, and her pal wants to see more, but 
she sighs that she just got done doing a tour with Jeffrey. She describes him as a very specific type, very country. She brings up him asking about James, her ex-husband, but she didn't tell him anything beyond implying they were divorced. Riley begins to speak, but Harper already knows what she's gonna say. This kind of thing is going to happen again and again. Maybe even for the rest of her life, she's gonna have to get used to it. Suddenly the video glitches to what looks like Riley screaming in horror, which then reverts back to normal. They hang up, and left alone, Harper starts to remember James falling and her screaming helplessly inside. More memories flood in that give us more context to the end of their relationship. James sternly says that he won't allow her to divorce him, but does understand why she would want to after his behavior for the past year. We never find out what James is going through, but it has completely torn apart their relationship by now. He attempts to rope Harper into a classic guilt trip. If she goes forward with divorcing him, he will take his own life, saying she'll be forced to carry his death on her conscience. She tries to counter with him about how unfair that is, and that she does have a life of her own. But he stays resolute. This is all her fault for wanting to divorce him in the first place. She brings up this kind of threat is exactly why she has to divorce him, because she can't live like this anymore. To clear her head, she goes on a walk, and soon finds herself enveloped by greenery, the color almost an unnaturally neon green. She wanders deeper into the foliage, and appears to be embracing the natural beauty all around her. A storm rolls in, and she takes cover under a tree, and watches something so simple but powerful in wonderment. It's nature, people! She next stumbles upon a long, dark tunnel, and the smile fades from her face as she approaches the hole. She stops at the edge and shouts out, hearing her voice echoing all the way down the tunnel until it fades away. She enters the tube and appears to be swallowed up in the darkness. She calls out again, and this time the echo doesn't stop, so she adds another and another layer, creating a haunting melodic chorus of chants. Her moment of appreciating nature is interrupted when a figure appears at the other end of the opening. They start running in a full sprint for her, and she hoofs it away, accompanied by a strange screeching sound. After fleeing, she thinks that she's lost him, but hears that distinct noise again nearby. She runs on and stops suddenly as a dandelion seed blows by. She finds her way to a strange industrial building, but with seemingly no way to get inside, she ascends the muddy terrain up a hill. She then comes to more abandoned buildings near an old railroad, and on the other side crests the woods, revealing a massive open field. She stops to collect herself and shakes her head for being so frightened without any real reason. To try and appreciate the moment once more, she snaps a photo of the old building, but notices a strange visitor in her shot. There's a completely naked yellow-skinned man just chilling out front. Back in London, after their argument and leap off the building, Harper sees James's body for the first time afterwards. His corpse is gored and broken, his hand impaled by a spire, and his leg twisted out of shape. After her yellow man encounter, she attempts to relax in the bath, but can't help but return to the photo, zooming in on the nude perpetrator out of concern as well as confusion. She then tinkles a bit at the piano before launching right into a complex Chopin composition, and so she can definitely play, despite her earlier telling Jeffrey she could not. It's like she's trying to downplay her skills because of her being a woman I'd wager. As she continues to play, we take in more serene displays of nature, clouds rolling across a field, the green algae on a river, and moss growing on a tree. All green, Harper hits the wrong note and scolds herself at the mistake. She does some work and discusses a profit issue with her co-worker over the phone. Caught up in the figures, she doesn't notice the man sauntering up behind her outside. He strolls right up to the back door while she goes to fetch some more tea. She returns to a computer still none the wiser and finishes up her business call. It's only afterwards, when finally giving Riley a tour, that she notices the intruder, and it appears that he's attracted to that apple tree. Harper phones the police to deal with the nuisance and see that he's gotten his face all cut up on the branches. While she describes his appearance to the operator, the man zips away. Harper enters the main hall and is horrified to see the front door is slightly open. She snatches the key and it starts to sway. She runs 
rushes to lock the door, and the man reaches in through the mail slot. Harper is promised help is on the way, and she drops the phone in terror. Establishing a clear connection between the past and her current antagonist, we flash back to James losing his temper and shattering a lamp. She furiously texts Riley, divulging that she's scared of him. He soon enters and snatches her phone away and is not happy with what he sees. I'm scaring you, he prods. She says he is, and he yells, she's scaring him, and accuses her of always making herself the victim. She stammers their relationship can't possibly be healthy if they're living in fear of each other, but he's not willing to listen. He demands to see what else she said about him, wanting her to unlock her phone. She puts her foot down and refuses, and James reacts in anger by socking her in the face, hence the bloody nose at the beginning. Now the intruder is placed under arrest, and getting our first indicator that something is very off here, the arresting officer has the exact same face as Jeffrey and the yellow man. The woman officer is at least sympathetic to her plight, but they are unable to turn up anything on the man, and based on what she's been able to determine, believes that he's harmless. He didn't resist arrest and just seems a bit confused, but does admit that he desperately needs a wash. Even if it was nothing, Harper is happy they were close by, assuming it would be quite difficult to get their help out here in the sticks. She updates Riley on the yellow man-related shenanigans, and she wants to come up to visit. Harper stays strong in her intentions for her coming out here. She didn't come out here to be afraid. She dismisses the guy as just some weirdo. They got him anyway, so that's the end of the story. That's so much. She explores the nearby village and starts with a quite lovely old and also completely empty church. At the forefront is what looks like a pulpit, and on one side is a carving of the Green Man of mythology, not to be confused with the Green Knight. The Green Man is a legendary pre-Christianity being, interpreted as a symbol of rebirth, representing the cycle of new growth that occurs every spring. And on the other side, there's a woman flashing her lady bits. She is Sheila Nagig, another symbol of uncertain origins, but is theorized to be used to keep away demons. She could also be considered a pre-Christian fertility or mother goddess. The dynamic and duology between these two is clear. Harper takes a seat in the pews and stares off into space. She thinks back to right after the fight and sarcastically wonders if that was his big plan to win her back. She's reached her limit and screeches for him to get out. James attempts to apologize, but she will not hear it, aggressively shoving him out the door. He keeps feebly trying to say sorry, and Harper makes her feelings abundantly clear at this point. He can apologize or do whatever. It doesn't matter anymore. He will never see her again, and slams the door in his face. Harper wails in remembrance of the moment, and a vicar steps into view. She leans her head down, getting more emotional, and he steps off without a word. Back at the carvings, the light transitions between the clean light of the church and the hazy orange associated with London. The two places are connected in more ways that we have yet to understand. Harper wipes away tears, and outside comes to a boy eyeing her up, donned in a Marilyn Monroe mask. They have a fairly normal introduction until he removes the mask, revealing the same face that is on every male, now a thousand times more creepy when plastered onto a young boy. He wants to play hide-and-seek, and Harper excuses that she's not really in the mood for a game. The vicar steps in to lend a hand, ordering the boy to move along. Before he goes, he lips off to them both, muttering that she's a stupid bitch. The vicar apologizes, saying that he's a trouble boy, and she's not too bothered. She's used to being cursed at by boys, but is surprised of him doing so to a vicar. Even though it for a moment seems the vicar is actually on her side, layers quickly peel away as he asks her a strange question. You're in pain, right? He spills that he noticed her back in the church. At first, he thought she was praying, but soon realized it was torment that she was feeling. He feels guilty for not approaching earlier, so he's doing his duty now. Is there any way that he can help? Harper doesn't feel that she's exactly tormented, but they come to the consensus that it's more like being haunted. He invites her to sit for a chat, and she opens up more about her and James's big blow-up. They were already in the process of separating, but then he hit her, something that had never happened before. It made her so angry that she threw him out and locked the door. What she didn't suspect is that he would 
bust into the flat upstairs and attempt to climb his way back down to their level. But he slipped, or she cracks, he let himself go, meaning he did make good on his promise to take his own life, and she is the one bearing that burden. This moment for Harper is personified specifically when James was falling and they locked eyes. She doesn't even know if this was possible, but it's this moment specifically that has been haunting her, again making her feel responsible for his death, even if it's not truly her burden. The vicar lends his fairly shallow perspective on things, thinking that she just wants to be understood, before putting an unwelcome hand on her leg. He can only imagine how dreadful all this is for her. It's the guilt that haunts her. That seared snapshot image, she carries it with her, and even sees it when she closes her eyes. But then, she consistently asks herself, what if? What if she had done things differently? Would James still be alive? This is really at the core of her character that we're getting into here, as she does think the same thing herself, with a tear streaming down her face. Would she have done things differently if she knew what was coming? The vicar then, just as James did before, piles on the blame on her. She must wonder what drove him to such grievous actions. Harper knows that it's not her fault, but the vicar wants to know if she really gave James a fair chance to apologize after striking her. After all, men do strike women sometimes. It's not nice, he says, but not necessarily a capital offense. Does she want to be comfortable or true? And pinpoints the main struggle for Harper. If she gave James a chance to apologize, would he still be alive? Harper is offended at the question, seething for him to fuck off. After she leaves, the vicar shows he is as gross as expected, rubbing his hand longingly on the spot where she sat. Yeah, gross. We're then presented with a very distinct look at the circle of nature. A deer carcass is rotting in the woods, and a dandelion seed falls right into its eye cavern, and we fly into the darkness. Harper's course continues as we flash over the church carvings. When pulling back, maggots are now covering the deer, consuming the carcass. They eat it, the carcass then becomes one with the earth, and it starts all over again. Circle of life. The yellow man appears to be taking a page out of the green man's book as he cuts a slice into his forehead and jams a leaf into the wound. Down at the local bar, Jeffrey is struggling his way through a crossword puzzle, and Harper strolls in, taking in that literally every patron shares the same face. Same for the bartender, too. And when ordering a drink, Jeff is adamant that he pay for it. He mentions having seen her at the church and also at the old rail line, which is odd because we never actually saw him there. This implies that in a way, all of these iterations of the man are one and the same. The cop comes in, hoping that she's okay now, and he explains to Jeff what happened, which he implies is some kind of torrid love affair. Harper is insistent that that is not the case, and Jeff is once more apologetic for his misguided words. The cop then reveals they had to let the yellow man go, as there was not much to hold him on. Harper is dumbfounded. He was stalking her. I mean, she saw him twice, you know? The cop counters, you saw him. Perhaps he didn't even see you once. She gets assertive. He did try to break into her house, and he shrugs that if she sees him again, to give them a shout. So she leaves in an exasperated huff, groaning that they are all wankers. She walks the empty, dark streets, and is stopped by a distant screen. She turns back to the local graveyard and quickens her pace. Behind a tree, the yellow man emerges, watching her inquisitively. She rushes home and locks up, frantically calling Riley with the latest news. Everything from the bratty boy at the church, the vicar who blamed her for James's death, and the officer that let her stalk her free. Riley shows that she is a consistently supportive friend, and again wants to come out to be with her. The house is the one thing that she wanted, and she chose this as her place to heal. Riley refuses to let her give that up because of some nut. So she's gonna come up, and they're gonna have a grand old time. And if that weirdo comes back, she'll chop his manhood off and stuff it down his throat. Well, that'll work. Harper concedes and goes to fetch the address. As soon as she gives her the details, the call starts glitching as before, and she misses what was said. She tries again, and the call dies, so as Riley wisely suggests, just text her the address. It does seem to go through, yet she gets an aggressive reply that does not sound like her friend. I already know 
know where you are, you stupid bitch. The lights outside start to blink erratically, and she cautiously approaches the window. Strangely, she sees the officer standing out there by the tree. She asks him what he's doing here, and he stays silent to all of her questions. The lights all go off, and when they come back on, he's vanished. Harper hears a twig snap, and suddenly all of the apples fall from the tree at once, raining down to the ground in a quite striking display. There's a sound of running footsteps approaching, and the bar wanker is here. He screams, rushing at her, and Harper outruns him, getting back inside. She shrieks, wanting to know what he's doing here. She peeks out the door and sees a shadow whizzing by. She crawls into the kitchen to retrieve a knife, and the lights go out again. There's a repeated thud at the front door, and then a window shatters in the kitchen. A chair is flung out nearby her, and she hears footsteps crunching on the glass. She backs out of the room and barks to the door, threatening if they come in, they're gonna meet her new friend, Mr. Knifey. It's Jeff that opens the door, wondering what in the world is going on here. And she still thinks she can trust this guy for some reason. Harper explains that someone was trying to break in, and he discovers an injured crow in the kitchen, which appears to be what broke the window. He coos to it, you poor thing, and snaps its neck, excusing that it had a broken wing, there was nothing to be done. In spite of the crow taking the blame, Harper is adamant that two men were here trying to break into her house. He appears sympathetic and understanding, saying that she does not strike him as a liar, and that this has already happened before. He puffs that as a landlord, it now falls to him to have a good look around and clear things up. She begs him to not go outside, and he brushes off her concern. Nonsense! She's a damsel in distress, and he's just the fellow for this job. Yeah, okay, wow. He steps outside, and the lights cut out once again. Jeff waves his arms to reactivate them, and gives a confident double thumbs up that the coast is clear. He gives a windbag threat to any potential lurking intruders. Whoever is out there, what they've done does not sit well with me, you hear? Yeah, big man around here, huh? <laughs> the lights blink, and he too vanishes like all the others. The yellow man is back in his place, and starts hobbling towards Harper. We also notice he now has several needles jammed into his body. He takes a big breath, and unleashes a handful of dandelion seeds at her. As they get closer, Harper leans her head back and holds out her arms. She sucks one into her open mouth, and we are bombarded with several flashes. She's seen screaming under the water in London, and then back at the window, but now accompanied by the seeds. The carvings are highlighted, the light continuing to dance over each. Then she's in a room, bathed in red light, with the carving in there with her, and then seen running in the woods. She dreamily walks back inside, and closes the door, and the yellow man is back. He reaches his arm through the mail slot towards her. She tentatively takes his hand, and he tugs at her, Harper screaming in terror. She lifts the knife, and jams it right through his arm, like all the way through. As he pulls it back, it drags the blade through his skin, and completely splits his entire arm in half, which is pretty grody. Now a word from our sponsor for today's video, Audible. Audible is your online home for audiobooks, podcasts, and audio series. We're inviting you to listen now to the new original supernatural audio thriller, The Prophecy, available on Audible. Head to audible.com prophecy to check it out now. It features an epic all-star cast, including Kerry Washington, Daniel Day Kim, David Oyelowo, Asa Butterfield, and Lawrence Fishburne. In the series, against a backdrop of worldwide unexplainable natural disasters, Dr. Virginia Edwards, Emmy Award winner Kerry Washington, seeks out agent Scott Thomas, Emmy Award winner Lawrence Fishburne, at a secretive government headquarters. Virginia claims these events are signs, and unless agent Thomas helps her, she believes things will only get worse. Can she convince the top secret agent from a secretive government program to help before it's too late? Follow the signs and find out the truth. The whole series is available for you to binge right now, and you can even get a free trial to test out Audible and see its vast library of content. Listen on Audible by going to audible.com prophecy now. Following screeching in another room, the creepy boy has returned, and his arm is all messed up as well. Now we know for sure that all these guys are indeed one and the same. He shows off his dangling 
strangling arm and moans that she really hurt him. She tells him to stay away, and the boy complains that she's mean. She wouldn't even play hide-and-seek with him, but he believes that she will now. Harper growls that she will cut him, but the boy continues to approach as he doesn't think that she'll really do it. She does cower back from harming him and slams the door behind her. The boy is happy that she is playing the game, and she starts to count to ten. Just as she reaches ten, the front door is kicked wide open by the bar wanker who chases her into another room. She waits breathlessly, staring at the door, and the handle jiggles. It's the vicar now who sighs as he enters. We now really start to understand the bigger ideas of play here. It's pretty clear that Jeff, or the man, is a stand-in for mankind as a whole, but he then recites a telling quote. A shudder in the loins engenders there, the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. I can understand being like, what the heck does that mean? Because I asked myself the very same thing. But it's the poet Yeats that he's quoting, and the story has surprising relevance to our own. It's all about a woman being taken by the god Zeus, but in swan form. And this connection is confirmed by the vicar. Harper wants to know what he is, and he simply replies, a swan. This becomes of monumental importance as the crux of the Leda and the swan story led to the Trojan Wars. There's way too much to dig into that, but its lasting impact is what's important. It brought about the end of the ancient mythological era and the birth of modern history. That's an even bigger insight that speaks to the grander story of the movie, tying back to the green man, nature itself, and also the role of man. The vicar Jeff and all the others fit into a particular mentality that fits into this older mythological era and doesn't represent modern ideals. So in a way, we're seeing that transition occurring from the past to the present, also represented via the green man imagery in the church. It's indicative of the old ways that they were holding on to that are no longer relevant. This idea is further established when the victor shifts gears into a more sexual arena, asking about losing her virginity and telling her that based on his own thoughts, he considers her a master in carnality. Again, based on absolutely nothing outside of his own deluded man brain thinking, he accuses her. This is the power she has and smiles creepily that she is singing to him like a siren luring him to her female organs, the rocks of which will dash me to bits. His whole thing here is almost like he's being hypnotized in a way by her femininity and based on the whole weird Zeus thing, thinks he is owed what he desires. He tries to have his way with her on the sink and she gets him in the gut to his surprise. So yeah, Harper does not agree with his whole mentality as this shows. She's come to represent the more modern and well accurate way of looking at women. She runs outside past the apple tree, but escaping won't be so simple, seeing her back running again in the halls. She gets to her car and peels away and is also still crawling on the floor at the house. She furiously drives through the windy streets and happens to plow right into Jeffrey randomly in the middle of the road. He stumbles to his feet and when seeing her says, Miss Marlowe in shock, he proceeds to drag her out by the hair and then growls, Mrs. Marlowe. Then he hops in the car and drives off. <laughs> okay, see ya. She gets to her feet and gets her breath taken away by the stars hanging in the sky. Shooting stars blow by a constellation and it's almost like she's seeing into another galaxy. Her moment of contemplation is interrupted by Jeff in her car returning and barreling towards her at high speed. He screams insanely and chases her down the road all the way back to the house. He narrowly misses her and tries a few more times, utilizing some sweet handbrake turns, but winds up crashing into a concrete lamppost. Harper falls to her knees and sobs as the lights blink on. A shadow looms towards her and the yellow man is back, or perhaps green man is now a more apt name, as his physical appearance has changed once more, now covered in leafy growths as well as twigs protruding from his head. He goes to take a step and his leg appears broken. His particular injuries now reminding us of James's injuries after his fall. His hand was impaled on the spike and his leg was twisted and broken, now getting an even deeper connection between the men and James. Even they are all a representation of men in a way, at least according to Harper's particular perspective. The man can't go on and silently screams in pain. He suddenly has a giant pregnant belly and out of his womb, a new life starts to emerge. A 
curls out with seeds still floating in the air. It too has the split hand and broken leg. Reiterating the cycle of nature, the man is literally spawning another incarnation of himself. The cycle continues as the new birth crawls towards her, and then he becomes pregnant as well. They collapse back, and another is born. It does look slightly different with longer hair. Harper is now indifferent and leaves the creature to respond again. The new guy peers up to her and instinctively crawls towards her. She grabs an axe as another starts to birth, his feet emerging from its host's mouth. She waits patiently for the next iteration to come and kill it for good. Yet this time, it shockingly resembles James and also bears the split arm and broken leg. We can now piece together with certainty that he is another representation of man as seen through Harper's eyes. No different than all the others. He takes a seat on the couch and she joins him. He commands her to look at him and lays out what happened. He died. His arm was ripped through by an iron railing. His ankle snapped and internal organs crushed. This happened because of you, he accuses, getting back to her whole thing. And she just wants to know what it is he wants exactly. He tells her her love, to which she scoffs in response. She sighs, yeah, and rubs the edge of the axe's blade. Another car pulls into the estate. Seeing Harper's wreck car is still there, even though we can't trust reality, Riley steps out and tries to comprehend the scene, noticing a stream of blood leading inside. She spots Harper on some stairs nearby and see that Riley is pregnant. Harper is preoccupied with twirling a leaf and tells, smiling at the side of her friend. So what the heck does it all mean? Well, it certainly is open to interpretation as there is a whole bunch of different stuff at play in the story. But for me, it's all about Harper and her specific emotional journey. She initially comes to the country with the purpose of healing from the traumatic experience with James, yet through Jeff and the other men, we see that it is impossible to run away from her feelings. They are all seemingly drawn to her, and since we ultimately see James as another incarnation, it makes sense that the men not only represent James and others, but her trauma specifically. She has to actually confront it head on rather than trying to ignore it. She has this moment at the end, rather than trying to run anymore, she has a face-to-face -face with James. He again blames her for his death, and that's the whole guilt that Harper has been struggling with. Is it really her fault? Would he still be alive if she did things differently? The point is she has to let go of this and accept that it is truly not her fault. They make it obvious that James is trying to guilt trip and gaslight her just from their one argument, so presumably this is what the whole relationship was like, and also why Harper wanted a divorce. It might seem selfish in a sense, but ultimately there are times when a relationship is unable to be salvaged, and that does seem to be the case. Even if she did allow him to apologize, his blood ultimately is on his own hands, and it was his personal choice that led to his demise. This connects us to the grander green man and religious connotations. The green man is all about rebirth, especially of that in nature, and in a way Harper needs a rebirth of her own. Then there's also how throughout history and religion, there are many stories that place the blame of something unfairly on women. For one example, they reference in the movie the story of Adam and Eve, she ate the forbidden fruit and all that. This pertains to Harper because she has to slough off this historical blame placed on women by men specifically. By allowing herself to move on from this, in her case how James unfairly blamed her for his death, she can go on to have her own rebirth in a way. One last thing, over the credits, the plant seeds continue over a green background. They eventually reform into their original shape of the plant, now resembling earth in a way. It's all connected. That brings us to the conclusion of this evening explained for men. And don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of men and its ending? Do you have a different interpretation of things? What's your favorite Alex Garland flick? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Found Flicks. See you next time.